Turn this morning to Romans chapter 11 one last time. Romans chapter 11. What a great assurance of pardon there from Micah 7, 18 and 19. All of God's word is great, but sometimes certain verses, they have a punch, and you can go back to them over and over again uh, to comfort your soul. Micah 7 is one of those. And today we come to Romans chapter 11. Spend a few weeks in this midsection of Romans, looking forward to concluding this today. And then when we take this up in a few weeks again, we come to the last section where Paul takes all the theology and drives it home. Here's what it means for us as the people of God. But Romans chapter 11 today, and I'll begin reading from verse 25. I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies for your sake. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. For God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. Just as you who were at one time disobedient to God have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound everyone over to disobedience, so that he may have mercy on them all. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out! Who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray one more time. Father in heaven, we do again thank you for your mercies that we have already read and celebrated in this text, Paul erupting in this doxology of praise to you for your ways in the history of salvation. So help us one last time as we consider that particular topic. Teach us your truth. Send us out rejoicing. May this be a joyful day because we celebrate the mercies of God in Christ And may that overflow to our family, friends, co-workers, neighborhoods. And Father, I pray uh, for any among us that don't yet know this mercy, haven't experienced it, reveal yourself to them. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The traditional hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, begins with these two lines. Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, tune my heart to sing Thy grace. I have always personally appreciated the imagery of that second line, tune my heart 
to sing thy grace. It pictures the heart like an instrument. And it's one that needs to be tuned in order to sing of God's grace. If if you've ever heard an instrument play out of tune, you know just how bad uh, and unpleasant that can be. Hard on the ears. But when the instruments are tuned, when they're well played, when the band or the orchestra is in sync, it brings great delight. And I think of that line often when I come to church. You know, what truth will tune my heart? What work of the Spirit So that I can go and sing God's grace. And now take that as just an overflow into the life that you live every day. What can we as Christians do to tune our hearts to sing God's praise? There there are times they need to be tuned. And God visits us in those seasons. He gives us his truth, his help, his grace when we're low. What, What does he show us? What does he teach us? that then enables us, both when we're low and when we're not, to say and sing God's praise. Well, as we conclude Romans 9 through 11 today, it erupts with this doxology, a praise to God for his ways in salvation history. And as you read it, you get the impression uh, that this has been welling up in Paul for some time as he traced the history and experience of salvation in these chapters. It just doesn't come out of nowhere. Uh, it comes from somewhere. Uh, something of a trite illustration, but I, I remember years ago watching a, a Florida-Alabama game, and, and, they, and one of the teams scored a touchdown. That, that made me very happy. And I've been sitting in a rocking chair, and when they scored, I jumped up. But somebody with me said, I could see that coming because you were starting to rock like really fast, and I just knew you were going to come out of that chair any moment. You can almost sense something like that here in Romans 11. Paul just doesn't get to the end and say, okay, well, let's thank God, or I guess I better tack this on. He is building to this culmination. He keeps talking about God's mercy and God's praise. And so as he wraps up the explanation, this explodes out of him in praise and gratitude and thanksgiving to God. He praises the wisdom of God. He traces the ways of God. And he sees God has accomplished salvation not only despite disobedience. Okay, they disobeyed, but God still was able to win. He accomplished salvation through disobedience and not giving it a pass, but also showing mercy to those who are disobedient. And so we're left with this idea that it's really been this theme of mercy all along. That's been the controlling idea in Romans 9, 10, and 11. It came out very early. Back in Romans 9, God says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And salvation does not, therefore, depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. And Paul said that in order to lay the foundation of God's sovereignty, that God is sovereign over history and the history of salvation. But he didn't lay the foundation of God's sovereignty in order to reduce God's mercy to a trickle, but rather to say, look how God's sovereign mercy flows like a river in salvation history. And so he will return to that theme again. We saw it in the middle verses of today's reading. It'll be his jumping off point when we get to Romans 12, and he begins to instruct the church. And so let's follow that 
path. Let's ride that wave one more time as Paul brings this section to a crescendo. Let's see how God's mercy tunes our hearts to praise Him. And then we can go out rejoicing in our Savior. So consider this. First, God's mercy reminds us that we are part of a larger purpose. Paul's initial move as he begins the passage is to continue the thought we saw last week where he was urging the Gentile Christians to remember with humility their place in God's saving purposes. Verse 25 reads, I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full numbers of the Gentiles has come in. So he wants the audience to grasp something. Something that will protect them from conceit. So what is that? It's this mystery of God. It's this way in which God has worked. And when Paul refers to a mystery, he doesn't mean something that needs to be solved still, like a murder mystery or, hey, God, God has revealed this in the Word, but we don't really know how this works. No, a mystery in Scripture is something that God has revealed for our instruction. It's rooted in the Old Testament, in the book of Daniel, where God gives this dream to Nebuchadnezzar, and then Daniel is able to interpret it. Daniel says this is a mystery that God has revealed. But again, while it may have confused initially, Daniel the interpreter says, ah, here's what God is doing. These are God's ways in history. And often you'll also find this word mystery, it refers not just to what God does in history, but especially to what he does in the end times, the period of time Christ kicked off by his resurrection. God has determined this, and here's how it's going to play out. All right, so what's the mystery that God has revealed? It is this, Israel will experience a partial hardening, until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And and there's a few parts there that are important that show how this is a revealed mystery. On the one hand, it's not a mystery that God would work to save the Gentiles. God had a plan for the nations. That's what Jonah had to learn. It's written all throughout the Old Testament. But when the Old Testament described that salvation, how did it come to the Gentiles? Again, through a Jonah through Israel, through the people of God, shining God's light into the world. Now, the idea that Israel would fail in this commission, but that through failure ultimately wouldn't come disaster, but out of the failed sinful nation, God would raise up a faithful Israelite, and that that servant would bring light and salvation to the world and reform and remake Israel and then send that new Israel out on his mission, well, that's a process that most people didn't come seeing or didn't see coming. That, that's a twist and a turn that left people confused. So what does it mean? Does it mean like, is Paul just making this stuff up, trying to make sense of things after the fact? Is he reading the Old Testament in an illegitimate way? No, it's Paul finally reading his Old Testament in light of Christ. 
See, something happened when that light shone on him that day and knocked him off his animal. He may have lost his physical vision for a few days, but the eyes of his heart and his understanding were open. And now Paul spent that time in the months afterwards picking up his Torah, his Old Testament, like a map, turning it this way and that until the light of Christ shone in such a way that it all made sense. He could see God's intentions all along. Ah, God made distinctions among his people in the Old Testament. Isaac and Ishmael, Jacob and Esau. God warned his people that their discipline would involve God calling another people my people. God warned his people that others would enjoy their blessings and that would make Israel envious. And so on one hand you can understand maybe someone reading it and they just don't see it. It's hidden from their eyes. But then when the light shines, looking back on it, it was there all along. And God has now revealed it. God has fulfilled what he promised to do. So one element, Israel's disobedience. And here's another element to the mystery. Verse 26 reads, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. So Israel's hardening will lead to the Gentiles' salvation. But our salvation will then lead to Israel's jealousy. That's what we saw back in verses 11 14. And that is how Israel will come to salvation. And again, that's something that every Israelite would have agreed. Yes, the Old Testament promises God will save us. But wait a minute. God's going to save us by means of the Gentiles? Once again, there's an idea no one saw coming. But nonetheless, this is how God works. And Paul probably employs a little double meaning when he refers to Israel in verse 26. You see, on the one hand, he has already, throughout Romans, expanded the definition of what it means to be an Israelite. Anyone who believes the gospel, they're a Jew inwardly. They're a child of Abraham. They are a member of my people. And as the Gentiles are entering God's kingdom, as they are confessing Jesus is Lord, well, all the Israelites are being saved. But at the same time, notice that Paul just said, Israel's hardening is partial and temporary. The nation of Israel, they are partially hardened, for a certain period of time until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. What does that imply? It implies that once the Gentiles are saved, Israel's hardening will be removed. And in that way, all Israel will be saved. Thus, Paul can also imagine that a large number of Israelites will be saved at some future time, perhaps when Christ returns. And all of this then will fulfill what was promised. Verse 27, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sin. Once again, Paul citing the Old Testament and he's citing those sections of Isaiah where God promises, I'm coming back to my people. 
I'll rescue you. You're besieged. You're battered. But I'm going to rescue you. The deliverer will come to Zion. And maybe you notice in Romans 11 it says from Zion. Interestingly, Isaiah reads the deliverer will come to Zion. But Paul's working creatively with his Old Testament. What does he know? The deliverer has already come to Zion. Christ has come. He's been crucified and risen. He's accomplished his work. And now that deliverer will come from Zion to rescue his exiled people. He'll go out from that traditional location of God's people and he'll save Jews and he'll save Gentiles and he will fulfill the covenant purposes that he has been pursuing since our first disobedience. And what does all that theology, putting those puzzle pieces together, matter for us? It inspires us to praise God. His merciful purposes are larger than we could ever imagine. First, his purposes towards you, they're merciful. You can rejoice in that individually. Beyond that, we can rejoice in that as a church. He is doing things beyond our imagination. It's not just about us. God works through us, but he works beyond us. So he's done wonderful things for us. Give him thanks. But he's doing wonderful things in his world. And give him thanks. Don't think that God isn't up to anything anymore. He visits you with mercy. That raises you up. But he also tells us, my merciful purposes, they don't begin and end with you. And that's good. That keeps us from being conceited or think it's all about us and our location and our history. Everything comes from mercy and that inspires us to praise God. Go out rejoicing today. God has big purposes for his world. Secondly then, God's mercy assures us of God's faithfulness to his people. So the way that Paul has described this mystery in verses 25 through 27, we get the idea that God's plan of salvation proceeds in stages. So God calls Israel, but then he hardens Israel to bring salvation to the Gentiles. He then removes Israel's hardening and saves them. So in the next verses, Paul develops that progression and fills in that outline with this idea of God's mercy. First, verse 28, as far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies for your sake. But as far as as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. So you can view Israel from two angles. On one hand, as far as the gospel is concerned, they are Enemies. Now, when I say enemies, I don't mean the sense of personal animosity, like we should look down on Jewish people or they should lose civil rights in any area. No, Paul means they are at enmity with God. They are estranged from him due to sin. They need to be reconciled to him. And again, Paul's not taking pot shots at Israel. This is the situation everyone's in. That's how Paul opened Romans. Humanity as a whole. We don't know. We don't worship. We don't follow and serve the creator. We tend to use the creation for ourselves, for sinful self-gratification. 
And that's something that any Jew would have said. Yeah, you got that right. You tell those Gentiles. But Paul labors to show, well, it's true of my people as well. It's not like you know we had these historical privileges, but that doesn't mean God thinks more lightly of our sins than he does anyone else. No one can claim an advantage on salvation on the basis of nationality alone. That's just the point Paul has made. We're all in the same bucket. But at the same time, the Jews can rely on God to be faithful to his promises. That is the point of the second statement. They are loved on account of the patriarchs. And and if that seems self-defeating, well, wait a minute, then they could claim special status. No, what was the point of God making a covenant with them? To bring salvation to the world. Through Abraham, all nations will be blessed. And so the other nations get included, but that doesn't mean the original recipients get excluded. God has expanded his covenant, not reduced it. And God intends to fulfill his promises of salvation. That includes to his original first covenant people. Why? Why would God be like that? Because that's his character. Verse 29, God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. God doesn't change his mind on his people. And Paul opened Romans 9 through 11 by rehearsing Israel's gifts, the adoption of sonship, the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises, the patriarchs, and being the human ancestors of the Messiah. And at the beginning of Romans 9, those gifts caused Paul to stress. Man, how could you have such gifts? and not believe the gospel. Well, Paul's traced that out to its conclusion. If God gave Israel such gifts, chief among them, that he called them to be his people, well, how can he fail to deliver on the final product? Yeah, maybe right now they're missing out, but that's so God can accomplish these grand purposes of salvation. It's a turning, twisting path. But that does not mean that God will not reach his destination. His promises and his purposes will succeed. They will triumph in the end. And so Paul just kind of restates that path for us in verses 30 to 31. Just as you who were at one time disobedient to God have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. You see, we as as humans, we have a tendency to, to go our own way to devise a plan for our lives that is independent of God's, to to sit in judgment on his words. That's what we read in that original story in Genesis 3. Now, if someone did that to you, how would that make you feel? We would be incensed. But what did God do in response to our disobedience? He showed mercy. That is the way of God. In fact, he used the disobedience of Israel to bring mercy to disobedient Gentiles. And just when you think that mercy has been exhausted, we read that God will again show mercy to disobedient 
Israel. You just can't max out the mercy of God. Why? Because he's faithful. Because he's merciful. Because he's impartial. As verse 32 summarizes, God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. If if, if Paul's path is just a little too twisty and, and hard to follow at times, here's the summary. Everyone is bound to disobedience. That means we're all locked up under disobedience. We've all been imprisoned by disobedience. We don't have an inherent right to God's favor. We deserve the opposite. But that is not how God leaves us. Rather, because everyone is disobedient, God gives them the only thing that will actually solve their problem, which is mercy. And again, he's not obligated to do that. That's what makes it mercy. But he chooses to. And again, the point isn't to say it's this little trickle. It's everyone's bound over to disobedience because God is going to show mercy to all. He's impartial. He shows mercy to those who spurn his mercy, Israel. He shows mercy to those who are ignorant of his mercy, Gentiles. He has these purposes and promises to save many. And that is how he works. And those are good things, friends, for you to keep in mind, for you to think about this week. When you think about your relationship with God, what's he like? He is a God of mercy. So if you're running from him, stop. You're running in the wrong direction. You think you're running away from the problem. No, he's the solution. Turn to him. Run to him. When you are still a sinner, he moved towards you in mercy. So you can turn towards him in love. You will find forgiveness. You will find acceptance. And then these are good things for us to remember in our relationships with others. Parenting is an easy one that comes to mind as parents. And this is whether your children are young, growing up, already adults, that we move towards them in mercy. I mean, it is easy to get offended. It is easy to take things personally when children don't show the love or the respect or they reject kindness, but move towards them in mercy. That is how God has moved towards us. And we can broaden it out. It's not just parenting. You think of friends you know, people you've invested in, co-workers, friends, distant family. You've invested in them and they rejected it. How should we respond? We respond with mercy. Because that is how God responded to us. And he does it because that's just who he is. And that's who he will be. And that inspires our prayer. And so lastly, friends, God's mercy inspires our trust and worship. We finally come to this doxology that concludes the section. I think the verses are worth reading again. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Now here's what I want you to notice about this doxology. This is a culmination, not a resignation. 
Paul doesn't end Romans 9, 10, 11 with a sense of frustration or resignation as if he's saying, okay, this is how God's sovereignty and salvation works. I don't know. I can't figure out or I don't get it. Why is God that way? No, he's celebrating. He's rejoicing in what God has sovereignly done. He worked through Israel so that he can now work through the world and then through Israel again. In other words, Paul's conclusion is, wow, God really delights in showing mercy. And he came up with a really good plan for doing it. You see, God has an inexhaustible depth of riches, wisdom, and knowledge, as verse 33 tells us. Riches in terms of kindness. What did chapter 10 say? He richly blesses all who call on him. There's a depth of riches there. You can't swim or sink to the bottom of it. Depth of wisdom, God's ways of working with humanity, his saving plan, and a depth of knowledge. God foreknew us. We have come to know him. You can't exhaust that knowledge. And God has used all those things in order to show mercy to his creation. And why Would God show mercy? Why show mercy in this way? Because that's how God saw fit. And he knows best. Verse 34 asks, Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? It's from Isaiah 40. And if you were to read that uh, passage, you'll just see these these constant questions saying, Hey, who's equipped to to run God's world? It's like the questions at the end of Job. Who who can be God's intellectual advisor and and kind of help him direct things in the world? The expected answer is no one. And we'd give the same answer to the question in verse 35. Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? Can you bribe God? Can you outpace God in giving so that God has to come alongside and and pay you back? No, his mercies are greater. His wisdom is greater. His way of doing things is always going to be greater than ours. And his ways of doing things manifest his mercy. I mean, I understand. If you look back at God's ways and histories, you know, could he have different done it differently? Would you have done it differently? Maybe, but I don't know best like he does. And and when you consider what he has done, he has solved the world's problem of sin. He has been faithful to his covenant. And he's used the disobedience of the creation and the covenant people to bring about the very salvation that's being rejected, I think God has done a pretty good job. And so you can trust him, and you can praise him, and you can exist for him. As verse 36 concludes, For from him, and through him, and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Because of his faithful promises... And the faithful son, he gets everything. And trust me, that is the good life. That's where you want to be. So whether the ways are difficult and painful, like the start of Romans 9, or whether they're smooth and peaceful, like the end of Romans 9, if they're both at the same time, or one season comes and one season goes, that's God's way of bringing mercy to his creation and glory to himself 
You can trust that, and it'll tune your heart to give God praise. So let's do that as we close. Father in heaven, we simply pray, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, tune our hearts to praise you. Make us a praise-filled, rejoicing people. Fill our lips with praise and thanksgiving this week. Make us joyful. Make us gracious. May giving glory to you be our goal. And and may it happen because of transformed hearts by grace. May it just flow out of us. We can't keep it in like Paul. Send us out rejoicing. Not an empty sentimentality. Not to put the overemphasis on feelings or, or how we act or look, so to speak. You've made us differently, given different gifts, different dispositions. But I pray that in all of the many gifts and variety of this body, we be united by that tune of praise and thanksgiving and joy. You'd help us to show that to one another and to those outside this week. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.